Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Mike will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. A couple over here on the right, Mike, is some more too. And over here and more Bibles over here. You might need to pick some more up. As you're turning there, we're continuing our study through what is called the pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy, Titus. They're known as pastoral epistles because these men were pastors at that time. And they needed encouragement. I think that's why I like, you know, these letters because they do bring encouragement to a pastor. But I also trust they do bring encouragement to all of us here this morning. And I think as we come to these five verses that we're going to look at, you can really sense that they're in a response to Timothy's heart. No doubt Timothy made known to Paul the fact that he felt that he was just not prepared for the ministry that some in the church were coming against him because of his age, perhaps, lack of experience as a pastor. So as we read this, we get a glimpse, a sense that Timothy was questioning his calling, wanting to give up, wanting to quit. So with that in mind, Paul reminds Timothy of the love and the grace of God. Let's go ahead and read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12-17. through 17. Paul writes this, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The title of my study this morning is God's Amazing Grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, the time to gather together to be in your word and know, Lord, that it's your desire to speak to our hearts. And so we pray, Lord, as we are here, Lord, that we would uh, be open to receive whatever you have to say to us, Lord. Be it an encouragement, an exhortation, a conviction of sin, whatever it may be, Lord, we pray that we'd be open to receive all that you have for us this morning. Thank you for your word and the power behind your word to change our lives, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that, that does not have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. They're not born again today. Their sin has not been forgiven. Lord, would you especially touch them today that they might know you and love you as we do this morning. So we thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, after 20 years of shaving himself every morning, a man in a small southern town decided he had had enough. He told his wife that he intended to go from now on to the local barber to shave him each day. He put on his hat, put on his coat, and went to the barber shop, which happened to be owned by the pastor of a small Baptist church. Well, the pastor's wife, Grace, also happened to be the hairstylist, and she was working that day, and she performed the task. Grace shaved him and sprayed him with aftershave and, and said, that'll be $20. Well, the man thought the price was kind of high, but he paid it his bill and went off to work. Well, the next morning, the man looked in the mirror and his face was as smooth as it was, the, you know, the, the morning before. I mean, just, just as smooth as could be. I thought, man, that's not so bad. At least, you know, I don't have to shave every day. 
Well, the next morning, his, his face was still smooth. Then two weeks later, the man was still unable to find any trace of whiskers on his face. It was more than he could take. So he returned back to the barber shop. You know, and he thought, he says, I thought $20 was high for a shave, he told the hairstylist, but, but you must have done a great job. It's been two weeks and my whiskers still haven't started growing back. Well, the expression on her face didn't even change. Expecting his comment, she responded, ready for this? You were shaved by grace and once shaved, always shaved. That's a new one. I've never read that one before. I thought, I like that one. <laughs> okay. One more. Okay. This is, this is getting to our point. Okay. A man dies and he goes to heaven. Of course, Peter meets him there. And people are really going to be disappointed when Peter doesn't meet them there. But anyway, Peter meets him there. Peter says, here's how it works. You need a hundred points to make it into heaven. You tell me all the good things you've done, and I'll give you, give you a certain number of points for each item, depending on how good it was. When you reach 100 points, you get in. Okay, the man says, I was married to the same woman for 50 years, never cheated on her, even in my heart. That's wonderful, said Peter. That's worth three points. Three points, he says. Well, I attended church all my life and supported its ministry with my tithe and service. Terrific, says Peter. That's certainly worth a point. One point? Golly, how about this? I started a soup kitchen in my city and worked in a shelter for homeless veterans. Fantastic. That's worth two more points. Two points, a man cries. At this rate, the only way I can get into heaven is by the grace of God. Exactly. Come on in. God's amazing grace. You can't earn it. You certainly don't deserve it. But that's just the way our God works. I love the lyrics to Phil Wickham's song, This is Amazing Grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. That you would lay down your life. That I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing all that you've done for me. God's amazing grace. Paul here wants to remind young Timothy that it's all about grace. God's amazing grace. Grace that we have received from our Savior and grace given to us to continue to serve our Savior. See, if you're taking notes this morning, Paul shows us three things. The past, verses 12 through 15. The present, verses 6, verse 16. And the praise, verse 17. Number one, the past. Now, now to understand our past, before we get to verse 12 here of 1 Timothy, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles over to Romans chapter 3 this morning. Romans chapter 3, we actually get a very good glimpse of our past. That is, if you've come to the point where you're taking the grace of God for granted, like perhaps Timothy was, Romans chapter 3 will give you a glimpse of what you and I really are like apart from God's amazing grace. Now, I want to warn you first. This is like kind of driving down the road and coming upon some roadkill, okay? You know how that goes. You think, oh, is that a bag? What is that? Is that a tire? What is that? Oh, it's roadkill. But you still look, don't you? You want to get it? Is it a skunk? Is it a squirrel? Is it a possum? What, what is that? You know, you know it's not an armadillo because it's on its back with its roads up and it's on the side. But anyway, this is what Romans 3, it's a glimpse of our roadkilled lives prior to the grace of God. This is what you and I look like. Look at starting in verse 10 of Romans chapter 3. 
as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, what we just read, what we just drove upon, is our roadkill. This is you, this is me, this is us. All of us here at Calvary Chapel, before we came into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and His amazing grace in our lives. You may say, well, you know, I know before I came to Christ, I did some good things. Well, according to what we read, I mean, if you, if you did, God is the one who inspired you to do the good thing that you did, because it's all Him. Any good thing that you did was an impression or an impulse reaction to His Spirit. But after coming to Christ... We know that now. We, we see that. But we know the Bible says there is no righteous. Paul says, no, not one. So the righteousness is not our own. So then why after coming to Christ do so many people act as though it's because of their righteousness that they're not right with Christ? Why would I want to say I had anything to do with it at all, especially after reading Romans chapter 3? In fact, Paul clears it up for us in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 that, that God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. That's me. That's you. We're ungodly sinners. What makes you and I right now is not anything we can do. It's what he's done. All we need to do is accept the robe of his righteousness because it's his robe of righteousness. Why on earth would we think that we had anything to do with that? But you know, Paul doesn't stop there. He says in verse 10 of Romans 3, he says, not only is there none righteous, no, not one, that is, you've done nothing righteous apart from him, but he also says in verse 11, there is none who understands In other words, you've had no understanding about God apart from Him giving you that understanding. Now this is an amazing thing to think about, especially while you're in church right now, because I know growing up, I went to church before I was saved. And perhaps you did as well. I went to church very religiously, and and I listened to great prayers about God and Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross, but I didn't understand. I couldn't understand apart from God giving me that understanding. Now, the day that the Lord turned the light of my understanding in my life, then I understood. As I listened to Pastor Chuck Smith on the radio, driving in my car, listening to a Bible study, all of a sudden my eyes were open, and though I was blind, now I understood. It made perfect sense to me. And suddenly I began uh, to read through the Bible and, and, and understand the Bible like I'd never had in the past. I'd read it before, but never with this understanding. God turned that light on of understanding. And listen, until God turns on that light of understanding in a person's life, they have no understanding of what they think they understand. Because they really don't understand. Do you understand? Because they're still in the dark. But that's not all. Paul adds another thing before we came to Christ in verse 11. He says, there is none who seeks after God. In other words, God says, it's not only were you not right with me, not only did you not understand, but also you didn't seek me. And we say, well, wait a minute. What do you mean I didn't seek God? How did I get her this morning? I'm seeking God right now. No, it was His Holy Spirit knocking on your heart and saying, you need to get up, you need to get out of bed, you need to get to church and seek me with your whole heart, soul, and mind. It's God who's seeking you out first. But apart from Him, you would never seek Him. 
In fact, the Bible goes as far as to say, apart from Him, you can do nothing. You're worthless. Now, there might be some here that are new here this morning, and you're saying, boy, every week you tell people they're worthless, and they still come back. What's up with that? But, but it's true because we're all in the same place. Apart from Jesus Christ, your life is not worth anything. In fact, according to datagenetics.com, your body's chemicals broken down is worth about $160. You pay more for the clothes that you wear than what your body's worth in its chemical state. But it gets worse. Verse 13, Paul says, your throat, if you look outside, their throat is an open tomb. Basically, you were dead on the inside. And the way you talked, again, verse 13, your tongues, have they have practiced deceit, the poison of asps is under their lips. You have snake venom on your lips, poison coming out of your mouth. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. I mean, how is that for roadkill? That's our past. That's where each one of us have come from now and now walking with Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul adds one more thing as if to, to put the nail on the coffin, so to speak. He says, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Prior to coming to Christ, you did not fear the Lord. So none of us were righteous. None of us understood or sought after God. We were dead inside. Our mouths were filled with deceit and cursing and all bitterness. Very ugly. You may say, Pastor, you've done a great job of making me feel like roadkill. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. No, no we, we can't stop there. We mustn't stop there. We have to get to the good part about what God has done. Because once you come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, every one of these points are completely reversed. You are not righteous apart from Him, but now in Him, your righteousness is the righteousness of the Almighty God. Man, that's being very right. Apart from Him, you had no understanding. But now you have wisdom beyond your years. Apart from Him, you didn't seek it, but now you can't get enough. You're addicted to His Spirit. You find yourself seeking Him day in and day out. Your lips are being used to edify and to build up. There's compassion now. That's the change that's taking place in your life since Christ has come in, since you've experienced the grace of God. See, I want you to understand why we went to Romans 3 first is so that you sense and see Paul's heart as, as, the, as all that's come about in his life since he gave his life to Jesus Christ. It's all about God's amazing grace. That is exactly what's happening in 1 Timothy. Turn back to 1 Timothy now, chapter 1, verse 12. It's as if Timothy is talking about sound doctrine, and I mean Paul rather, is talking about sound doctrine and, 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 and uh, rather... Timothy has forgotten about God's grace and what God has saved him from, and he's discouraged. And so Paul now stops what he was talking about. Paul was talking about sound doctrine. He was talking about having a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. But Paul says, man, I've got to leave that alone for a moment. I've got to show Timothy God's amazing grace and what God has done in Paul's life and what God has saved him from. Now, with that, look now at verses 12 through 14. Paul says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Paul begins by just basically saying how blown away he is that Jesus Christ saved him. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me to be used by God to minister. Now what is 
so great about that is, is that God has done the same thing in your life and in my life this morning. He's in enabling you to do that which God has called you to do. You know, we always look at someone caught up in, in drugs or hanging out with the wrong crowd and, and we say, well, you can't hang around with that friend because he's an enabler. He, he's enabling you to do the wrong thing, to do the bad thing. But how, how about being an enabler, you know, to come alongside someone and help them to do the right thing? See, that's exactly what Paul is saying that God has done in Paul's life. It's the same thing that God does for you and for me. Listen, this is how he does it for you, mom. It's late at night and you're sitting up with your sick child and you don't have any more energy. Man, you're spent. You're, you're done. And yet you turn to the Lord and in your time of need and say, Lord, I don't have any more energy. I can't do this anymore. And suddenly God gives you that extra burst of energy. Holy Spirit comes upon you and man, man, you're able to get that done what needs to be done to go that extra mile. And in the morning your husband says, man, how did you do it? How were you able to stay awake? The Lord enabled me, you say. He gave me the strength I needed to get through. How about dad? You know, you're seeing the financial situation you're in and you have no job and you cry out to the Lord, Lord, I don't know what we're going to do. And suddenly that phone call comes and you've got the job. The prayer has been answered. You can say, the Lord enabled me. Whatever it is you're struggling, struggling with right now and feeling as though you can't do it, know that Christ is there and He's enabling you to do that which is right. We have an enabler. He's Jesus Christ. And Paul is looking at his path and he knows, he knows just how far he's come. The abundant grace that God has showered in his life with. And he wants to paint this picture for Timothy of just how amazing God's grace is. So he takes young Timothy by some roadkill of his own, if you would. And he describes his old life this way. Look at verse 13. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. And how's that for credentials? You know, if you get a book and you want to read the book and you want to find out something about the author, maybe you go and you look at his credentials. Well, he's got a, a BA or a master's or a PhD. Paul says, my credentials? Well, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, a violent man. That's his credentials. That's how he summed up his life. Now, Paul had credentials like crazy in Judaism. He was prominent in the Hebrew faith. He was a scholar, well-trained. He was affluent. He had lots of money. He had put a, a, lots of pull being in the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. A Pharisee of Pharisees, he's called himself. In other words, he was a spiritual athlete of the Jews, well-trained at being a Pharisee. Now, we know Pharisees, you know, at that time, they were someone who separated themselves from, from someone who's common like you or I. He was so dedicated to keeping the details of the law. In fact, the Pharisees at that time, they, they were not just content with the mere law given in the Bible. It wasn't enough that the Bible said you shouldn't work on the Sabbath day. They had to write down 39 more regulations and tenets of what it means to actually work uh, on the Sabbath. See, they were devoted to detail. To give you just a small example of this, how much they were, they were like that. Do you remember when the disciples, they were at the grain fields and, and one day pulling some ears of grain and they started chomping down on them? Well, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Oh, no, your disciples, man, they're working on the Sabbath. And the reason they brought that up is because plucking the grain with their hands to the Pharisee, that's harvesting. And rubbing the grain together in their hand, that was threshing. And because the chaff fell from the wheat before they put it in their mouths, they were winnowing. So they were doing labor on the Sabbath and taking something and bringing it to their mouth. That's how legalistic they were. And, in fact, if you spit on the ground, no problem. 
But if you spit on the ground on the Sabbath day and that spit happened to roll down in the dust, creating an impression in the, in the ground, you would have been guilty of plowing a furrow in the ground, working on the Sabbath day. Oh, man. That's in the Talbot. That was Paul, a devoted Pharisee. In fact, in Philippians 3, in giving sort of his pedigree, Paul says concerning the outwards, keeping of the law, I was perfect, I was blameless. I kept every ritual, every sacrifice, every feast day. I washed my hands just right. I always faced Jerusalem when I prayed. I raised my hands at the right times. I always kept my robes near my body to pass by people on the streets. Then Philippians, it says, but man, I count all those things as rubbish, as garbage. And now Paul, looking over his life, his own description of himself, he doesn't bring up all he did as a Pharisee. He says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man or a violent man. A blasphemer because he denied the deity of Jesus Christ, that indeed Jesus was the Messiah. A, a persecutor because we know that he was not content to remain in Jerusalem, uh, kicking the Christians out. He went looking for them, hunting for them. He wanted to make sure that the, this new cult called, Christian, cult called Christianity would be wiped out. That's his background. Insolent man, that means he was violent. Basically, in modern day, he was a bully. Someone who would use violence to manipulate people and get his way. He would push his weight around. That was Paul. You know, I think something happened in Paul's life that caused him to go that way. Some incident, I believe, in Paul's life that made, made such an impression on his life that he never forgot it. I think that incident was the stoning of Stephen. Think about this. Paul's there and he's watching Stephen being stoned to death. In fact, he took the coats the, of the, those that held them for the guys that were doing the stoning. And, and he's there and he's egging them on. Yeah, kill the guy, wipe him out, consenting to his death. Paul watched Stephen as Stephen raised his eyes towards heaven and said, Lord, forgive these people because they're doing this in ignorance. And I think at that point is when Paul kind of snapped. Something triggered in him that changed him dramatically in his life because immediately after that incident, he started breathing out murderous threats to the church there in Jerusalem. And that's when he really goes, I mean, he goes, he's out for blood. I mean, he's heading to Damascus and wanting to put Christians in prison knowing that it's going to end up in their death. It's like this, this uh, shark, you know, sharks when they get the taste of blood. So too, Paul was not content unless he could stamp out every last Christian he could find. And it wasn't until there on that road to Damascus that God knocked him off his high horse, literally, that God interrupted Paul's life. And you remember there in the book of Acts how he was on his way and God interrupted him and he's lying on the ground and he's stunned, the light's shining in his eyes and he hears a voice speaking from heaven saying, why are you persecuting me, Paul or Saul? And, and Saul, who would later become Paul, said, who, who are you, Lord? <laughs> you know, and I'm scared to death. And the Lord says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Don't you find it hard that you're kicking against the goad? You're kicking against this pointy stick. Saul, don't you find it hard that you keep kicking against the conviction in your heart? You know what is right and you keep kicking, kicking against it. And I think that was what he saw in Stephen. He struggled because he watched Stephen die so gracefully. And he's fighting that conviction in his heart by taking it out on everybody else. I think that stuck with him all those years. And one of the reasons why we'll read that Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners because I persecuted the church of God. But see, that, it was that moment that, that Paul uh, got rid of all that guilt and shame and experienced the grace of God 
in his life for the first time. After Paul, you know, Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. We're told in the book of Acts that Paul sat around for three days, just stunned, soaking in all that happened to him. You know, and, and, and Jesus appeared to him, spoke to him, he obviously accepted the Lord as his Messiah. He's alone and he's in the room, he's not eating anything, and he's just kind of stunned. Much like a, you know, a newly wed couple that just got married, they're going, what have we done? Paul, no, no doubt, is going, what in the world just happened? But again, in looking back, Paul describes it as God interrupting his life with grace. In fact, he says so. Look at verse 13. But I obtained mercy because I, I did it ignorantly and unbelief. Listen, we were all ignorant. All living in unbelief before we came to Christ. But God has given us mercy. Now this should be encouraging to all of us here. If God could use someone like Paul, who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecuted, and insolent man, to write most of the New Testament, incredible words, think, ladies, what God can do for your husband who's not a Christian. I mean, come on. Your husband may not be a blasphemer. He's not taking Christians to jail. You know, he's not seeing Christians being whipped. Listen, your husband's not that bad. And that is why I have so much more hope for this serious heathen I really do. You know, for the, for the guy that, that, you know, thinks they're fine, thinks, oh, no problem, man, I've been going to church all my life, and yeah, 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 I do the church thing, and I come in, and, and you know, I'm good, you know. Yeah, but you do know God. You may, may be going to church two, five, ten years, but you fail to see your, yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior. On the other hand, you get some guy that comes in here, man, and they, they've been in the world. You can tell they've been in the world for many, many years. Maybe they're tattoos all over their bodies, a leather jacket, torn Levi's, beard to the floor, chains on their sides. They come walking, I don't want to really be here. Great. God's going to touch your life. You're going to get saved today. That's the way God works. Again, Paul says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. I obtained mercy. What great words. You know how important that is? The reason that God has called the abased and the wicked the person who will acknowledge themselves as a sinner. Because once somebody knows and realizes how much mercy they've been given by God, they're going to want to show that mercy to others around them. It's going to change their lives forever. Now, you don't need to turn there, but, but it's the same attitude that we see in Luke chapter 3, verse 7. There's this woman who was in this awful, sinful condition. She came to Christ, and, and she begins to care for, for Jesus, and she lets down her hair, and she breaks this alabaster jar, and she begins to weep over her sinful condition and, 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 and anoint Jesus and, and acknowledge her need for God's grace. Meanwhile, you got the Pharisee, and he's kind of standing by watching the whole thing, and I imagine he's got his arms folded, and, and he's kind of judging what's going on, and he feels right, and he feels as pious, and he's looking on to this, this act of worship, and it's a, it offends him. And in Luke seven thirty. 39, it says that he spoke to himself. In other words, this is what he was thinking. Man, if Jesus really was a prophet, then he would know what kind of woman she is. He would know that this woman is touching him. Is, 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 she's a sinner. And Jesus, knowing what he was thinking, said this in Luke seven forty seven. quote, Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. I love that. In other words, how much mercy that she's been shown, she is going to want to, to, to show mercy. How much grace we've been shown. Man, we're going to want to show more grace. Alexander Pope put it this way. It's called the universal prayer. Teach me to fill another's woe, to hide the fault that I see, 
that mercy I to others show, that mercy showed to me. See, that's the whole point. You see, you can't be functioning in a church, find someone who's caught in adultery and grab a stone and say, oh, you should die. No, because the minute you pick up that stone, Christ is there riding in the ground, riding in the stand. Now, this is your sin and this is your sin. And suddenly you have to drop that stone and say, I can't say anything. Because suddenly we realize we're all saved by God's amazing grace. That's why God needed to call a man like Paul because if he called anybody else, they might have said, well, you know, I can see why you called me because, man, I, look how good I am. Look, at man, I, I went to seminary. I got a theologic, theological mind. I can see I have doctorate and master's and the right credentials. I'm your man. Paul says that's not the case. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Listen, though. Paul doesn't just stop with the mercy of God. Look now at verse 14. He says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Now remember, mercy is not getting what you deserve. If you deserve something, if you deserve a SWAT, you know, your kid deserves a SWAT, you give them mercy, they don't get that. You withhold that. But grace is a step further. It's God giving you something you don't deserve. It's not just withholding punishment. It's lavishing something upon you that you don't deserve. Paul describes it as exceedingly abundant. That word exceedingly is an interesting word in the Greek. Its prefix is the word hooper, H-U-P-E-R. It means to overflow something in extreme measure. Kind of like the dams in California with the water all overflowing down there. But see, it's where we get our English word hyper from. It's, it's, it's hyperactive, hypersensitive. It could be uh, defined as, as translated hyper-grace. God's interrupted Paul's life with hyper-grace, exceedingly abundant grace God poured out on him. Listen, I've met people uh, who, who have lived radical, sinful lives, and God has changed them radically. And they'll always look back at God's grace in the same way. They're humbled by what God has done. Oh, God, I, I can't believe uh, at how far I was down. Lord, did you save me? See, that reminds us that when God chooses a man or a woman, when God wants to use someone, that person should always be generally surprised that the Lord would select them because they know where they've come from. God looks for humble people, people who see themselves as they really are. A true per spiritual person will never boast of their own greatness or devotion or holiness. They always boast in the grace of God. I'm always suspicious when, when people brag about how committed they are to the Lord. They'll, they'll drop little hints. Well, when I was in prayer today for three hours, my, my knees are still sore. But, but anyway, when I was in prayer, I was interceding. And I remember that the Lord reminded me of how sacrificial my tithe was last week. And I don't want to put a number on it, but it was a lot. And, and I was also thinking about how many people I, I led to the Lord... Just be quiet, would you? I mean, what are you talking about? You should never boast about what you have done. Boast about what God has done in your life and for you. And I think any spiritual man or woman, you'd be aware of the simple fact that you have got a long way to go and a lot to learn. And anything you are today is because of the exceedingly abundant grace of God. And that brings us to our second point, which will be a lot shorter. Number two, the present. Look at verse 14. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So no longer is Paul, talk, Paul, talking, Paul talking about his past. 
He says, right now, Christ, Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. But then he adds, and as I look at myself, he says, I am the chief of sinners. Now, Paul, in the beginning of his ministry, claimed to be the least of the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Later on, about halfway through his ministry, he saw himself as less than the least of all the saints in Ephesians 3, 8. But here in our text, towards the end of his life, what does he say? Not, I was once the chief of sinners, or I used to be the chief of sinners. He says, I am the chief of sinners. Paul went from being the least of the apostles to the least of the saints to the chief of sinners. How can that be? Did Paul just get worse and worse and worse the longer he walked with the Lord? Did he sin more and more hideously, more and more frequently? No. Paul simply discovered that the closer he drew to the Lord, the bigger the cross was. The closer he drew to the Lord, the more intimate he became with the Lord, the more he realized how far he was away from the holiness of God. That's like this. If I were to play basketball with little seven-year-old Sam Gamwell, you've seen little Sam around here, it would be awesome. I would be awesome. I would be amazing. I mean, my rebounds would be great. That'd be so easy. My shots would be easy. I'd be incredible if I played basketball with little Sam. But if I decided to go one-on-one with Michael Jordan, even though he's retired, it would be a disaster. I would be what? The chief of losers. Okay? Why? Not because I've changed, but because my standard of excellence has changed. If we compare ourselves with neighbors, friends, even brothers and sisters in in the church, we don't look so bad. But when we go one-on-one with Jesus Christ, as we draw closer to Him and spend time with Him, we can't help but notice what a huge difference between ourselves and the one that we love. And we become like Isaiah who proclaimed to the people of Israel and the surrounding communities, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you in Isaiah 1-5. through And then he got to chapter 6. It reads, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and I cried, Woe is me. Seeing the Lord, going one-on-one with the Lord, seeing his own sin, he says, Woe is me. So too, the longer I walk with Jesus, the clearer I see my own sin and my own inconsistencies. And, and that's why, you know, we can all say, as Paul said, man, I'm the chief of sinners. But this is what is amazing to me. The reason why God chose Paul, he says, look at verse 16. He says, however, for this reason, I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. As a pattern. A pattern is something that you follow to make sure it's turning out the same as the original. So Paul is looking at his life. We see he suffered. We're going to suffer. We see he has shown God's amazing mercy, God's amazing grace. We're going to be shown God's amazing mercy and amazing grace. Paul's life was a pattern to others to see what God can do in a person's life who's committed to Jesus Christ. And how God can change the life that was heading for destruction, heading for disaster. That is through Jesus Christ and His grace alone and mercy that saves. And that's what brings us to our final point. Number three, the praise. Look at verse 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I love this. Paul is nowhere near being done writing his letter to young Timothy. He has so much more to say and we're going to be looking at that. But in the midst of talking about God, what God has done in his life, his spirit is so full of thankfulness for God's grace, 
for God's mercy that he just burst forth in praise in the middle of this, this letter. He's so thankful for salvation. Oh God, my God, to my God, my King, immortal, invisible, who alone really is wise. He deserves all honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So be it. That's what the word amen means. So be it. In other words, Paul is saying, God, thank you for saving me. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you thanked God for your salvation? Just thanking Him that you're saved. We sing it from time to time. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. And and listen, we need to realize how much we have been saved from. Do a quick Bible study on hell. I'm sure you're going to become real thankful for your salvation. You'll say, thank you, Lord. There was the founder of the Salvation Army who said it would do every Christian well to dangle over the pit of hell for 10 seconds. I agree. I would be real thankful. But listen, if you've come in and said, I think I've got enough righteousness to get me into heaven. I'm not that bad of a person. And, and I don't see, you know, how, I mean, God's just going to say, okay. And, and if you don't see that the wages of your sin is death, then when you come to church, you know, the worship that we do is not going to mean anything to you. You know, if we sing, uh, you know, songs, you know, the amazing grace is not going to mean anything to you. Just a song. Listen, as we get ready to close, if you come to church today spiritually self-satisfied, feeling as though you know enough, let me tell you, you're not in good shape spiritually. If you have that mentality, listen to what Jesus said in Revelation 3.17. He says, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have needed nothing, and do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? You may be here and you've been singing, oh, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those old hymn songs. I'm really not into that. But listen, if you're truly aware of your sinful condition, you know the truth of that song. You know the truth will set you free. You know that when you hear that song, something happens in your heart because you realize it's all about God's grace. God, thank you for saving me. I can't believe, God, that you picked me. You sought me out. And not only that, you trusted me of all people with the gospel to go and tell the world. Why would you pick me? Paul says God picked him to show the world that if God can work through Paul, he can work through anybody. That means that God can work through you. God can work through me. As the old hymn says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I can see. You can see. It makes so much sense now. We have so much more reason to be thankful and grateful. See, folks, here's what I think. If we don't seize the opportunities, and if instead we begin to take His grace for granted, I'm afraid that we're going to find ourselves living lives that are compromised. Saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but our lifestyle will no longer be different than the rest of the world. And down the road, when someone asks you about your relationship with Christ, you'll be like the majority of the so-called believers who live in the Bible Belt, as I shared last week, all belt and no Bible, all show and no go. No strength to change, no power to live, no opportunity to be used by God. Because it's that attitude that says, well, I'm good, I'm okay, I don't need to get all religious like you, I'm okay. Well, if you're really okay, then explain a dying Savior. If we're okay, then why was Jesus nailed to a cross? If we're all okay, then why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we're both okay, then why we see after the third day lifted out of that empty tomb and ascended to heaven? I know why. Because we weren't okay. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were all roadkill in need of a Savior. 
Jesus Christ died for your sin. He died for my sin. I mean, do you know that? I know Jesus is my friend, but He also is my Savior. And I pray that if you don't know Him this morning, that you'd come to know Him and experience that grace in your life. That He will forgive you of those things in your past. Completely wash you clean. Though your sins be red as scarlet, they will be white as snow that was falling on the ground as you come in here. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Just put your faith and trust in Him this morning. Now for us that believe, man, the grace of God. Don't take it for granted. God is so good. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your love and grace. We thank You, Lord, for your Holy Spirit, Lord, that shows to us through your word our lives before we came to you, what you did for us, and now our lives now that we know you, Lord. And we just want to praise you. We want to thank you for our salvation. We want to thank you for saving us from hell. Thank you for saving us from ourselves, Lord. And I pray right now, Lord, if anybody's here that, that does not have not experienced that grace in their lives, I pray that they would turn to you this morning, that they would repent of their sin, and they'd give their life to you. And Father, I pray for us, Lord, that you would help us to show that grace to those around us. Lord, help us to be different from this world and honor you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.